discrimination. So in terms of punishing dissent, we have in my data that what I find, and a UUK study incidentally found that 11% of uh, uh, UCU academics, sorry, a UCU study found 11% of academics reported uh, being disciplined or threatened with discipline for um, some aspect of teaching, research, or public commentary. But amongst some, some of my data would suggest that amongst those on the right, that small minority of five, maybe 10% maximum who are conservative, it's three times as high. In the US, one in three conservative academics and PhD students has either been disciplined or threatened with discipline for uh, teaching research or public commentary. On the plus side, uh, most academics actually don't support cancel culture if that means uh, endorsing the dismissal of academics who are doing controversial work uh, around race and gender, only about one in 10. Uh, but what is revealing, unfortunately, is that about almost half don't oppose can attempts to dismiss academics. So you have quite a permissive regime. You don't have many actively intolerant uh, authoritarians, but you have a significant pool of, of relatively permissive um, academics who are willing to perhaps look the other way or not challenge this cancel culture. The other thing I find is there's significant political discrimination. One in three academics in my surveys would not hire a known leave supporter for a job. In the US and Canada, it's over 40% who wouldn't hire a known Trump supporter for a job. Uh, Previous studies and my own studies find likewise discrimination in um, grant applications, in journal article submissions, promotion applications runs anywhere between 20 and 50% uh, So against conservatives. So we have a very strong minority that is willing to discriminate uh, against conservatives. It's not because academics are worse than anyone else or because the left is worse than the right, but when you're you know, in a way, when you outnumber the other side 10 to 1, your discrimination counts a lot more than theirs. And that is more or less the bottom line. And so there's a very powerful incentive as a conservative or gender critical or non-conforming academic to keep your mouth shut. And so we see self-censorship in Britain. It's sort of a third to a half of conservatives say they censor their research and teaching. In the U.S., among conservatives, it's pushing 70%. Um, so we have a majority in North America and close to majority in Britain that are self-censoring. So this is the whole chill effect I'm talking about. We have punishments and threats uh, administratively, and we have discrimination from colleagues. Um, and the combination of these two things repels uh, conservatives and other political minorities from entering academia. And I've got surveys to show that as well, that they don't believe their politics would fit properly. And what this means is that then makes academia even more homogenous, which makes it even more repressive, which in turn repels. So you've got this spiral that has occurred, and we can see it in the ratio between left and right, which has gone from in the social sciences and humanities in Britain and the U.S., but if we take the U.S. first, about 3 to 1 in 1960, and it's about 12 to 1 now, or even up to 14 to 1. So we've got a very, very slanted um, professoriate as a result of a combination of chill effects, discrimination, um, the typing of academia as a left-wing profession. So that narrows down uh, viewpoint diversity. And it's my contention and, and it's, uh, that only external intervention can break this downward spiral. Um, and what are the things that government and only government really can act um, to change this? The universities cannot, in my view, reform themselves. The problems are not just post-2015, 
they go back to the late 1980s with speech codes. They go back to political correctness. The political discrimination has been going on and getting worse and worse as that ratio of left to right has been getting worse. Um, so the first thing I would advocate, uh, which the government um, took up, is a proactive application of the existing body of law on academic freedom. Instead of waiting for people to sue, the government audits and fines universities to ensure that they are, in fact, adhering to the law, not breaking the law. It's that simple. Second, clarifying the law to make it, uh, in a way, to sh so that academic freedom has clear priority over other duties that are often invoked by universities to, to uh, trample on academic freedom. Typically, equalities duties, but particularly subjective definitions of harassment uh, and harm, such as quote-unquote emotional safety, and also raising reputational damage as a reason to shut down speech. Uh, I also think, however, that we need to go even further. I, I think measures are needed to institutionalize a norm of non-discrimination in the administrative layers of the university, all the way down to, to, to department heads. Academics themselves can be as political as they like, but not when they are acting in an official administrative role and not in terms of official communications, because right now, too many university departments and universities are overtly progressive and left-wing, and that actually is contributing to the chill effects. I also kind of I also believe that um, alongside equity and diversity policies on race and gender, uh, I think universities should have to actually show an equivalent action on political diversity, so that they should not be allowed to pursue one at the expense of the other, which is what they're doing right now. Um, and ultimately, this gets to my final point, I think only really external intervention can break the spiral that has gripped universities in North America, perhaps even worse than here. Thank you, Dr. Kaufman, um, for your introductory statements. Um, we'd like to hear from you now, um, Dr. Dennis Hayes. I want to approach this slightly differently because I've been a campaigner for free speech and academic freedom now for 15 years. When we founded Academics for Academic Freedom, uh, we put out a statement which was basically um, a free speech statement. We wanted to put free speech back at the heart of academic freedom to get academics to sign up. And since then, we've gone on to do other things. I won't list them all, but we do a lot of casework. So a lot of casework about academics who are um, um, what we contemporarily would say cancelled, but... Um, I don't agree with, I mean, broadly, I agree with a lot of things that Eric said, but I think there's other things um, behind what's going on. It's not just a, a conflict of ideologies. So I'm going to say four things um, about what's changed. And I think the most important one is the legislation itself. And what that tells me is that um, everybody now is into legislation and regulation. Basically, um, the people who are campaigning for academic freedom have given up. They've given up and decided they can't do anything anymore. So they're going to regulate it and trust government to regulate it for them. Um, you know, the reports from um, Policy Exchange and Keogh and Civitas last year all said, you know, there's this terrible situation, you know, we need to have regulation, you know. And I think um, it's not going to work. What's going to happen, it's going to be incredibly bureaucratic. You know, I know because I was involved in um, consultations with the DFE and you could just imagine you'll, the Office for Students will have checklists and there'll be all sorts of statements and everything will go on as normal. And, and you know, if you're involved in um, casework with defending people, it takes hours and hours of time you know, actually defending them. And it isn't just political um, positions. I'll just say this. It's um, 
often just a chance comment. It's not necessarily left wing or right wing. A chance comment in chats, the use of a metaphor, a statement about something that's happened at your university can get you charged with gross misconduct. And I think um, you know, there's something more profound going on. And I think it's a shame. I don't think regulation will actually change anything. You know, we only have to go, go to the um, First Amendment legislation in America and the fights that still have to go on about um, the First Amendment. You know, it's not easy. We already have the right to put forward controversial and unpopular opinions in law. Mm. We just, we have that. So, you know, so we have something even more, but it won't change anything. I think the second point I'm going to make is that what's really sad about all this is people have lost faith in academics and students. They've lost faith in students and academics to do anything about free speech. And I think it's a real shame because in the preamble to the policy paper, they point out the obvious that there is a fight back. It, it came into my mind first. I, I was talking um, as a panel on node platforming at Warwick in 2017. And students came up after me. It's never happened before. and said, how can I start a free speech society? How can I defend free speech? And there's been a real shift. And I know he's here, but you know, if you give an example of what students can do, Heenan Clough at Liverpool University put forward an academic freedom manifesto. There's people doing things all over, you know, even in UCU, which is totally opposed to academic freedom. We've got Shireen Benjamin and others coming forward on academic freedom platforms. So something really good is happening. And my real worry is that that will be stifled by um, the legislation and people with universities will just look to the champions you know, and they'll do the work for you. you know, I know that happens to me. I'm sort of free speech champion in my university. If there's any free speech issues, they come to me. But basically, they keep the head down. But I think my third point, and it's, I mean, it's my view, this is, I think the policy paper and a lot of the things that Eric has said deal with symptoms, not the cause. You know, and for what I, I see, there's a more fundamental change in culture. For what, what has happened, and I've written about it in The Dangerous Rise of Therapeutic Education and other things, we've seen the coming of a therapeutic university. You know, universities have reformulated themselves around what I call T2V, therapy to victims. So you, know, you get your authority by giving therapy to somebody who's a victim. So you know, the concerns with safetyism, which builds on from safeguarding and self-esteem, resilience, happiness, well-being, mindfulness, now mental health, all these things, universities are more concerned with these than teaching subjects. And I think... Now, you can see, it was a really good example. Somebody told me that one of the students came out of um, a tutorial and said, oh, that really affected my mental health. You know, you're given a new vocabulary of vulnerability. And, and I will just say that it's not just that, these, that people are becoming snowflakes, which when you say that I'm vulnerable, it gives you power. You, know, you, you cannot be questioned. And it seems to me that in that climate, it's not just about a few people being emotionally hurt. You know, if students are tripping off to petting zoos and you know, anti-stress sessions, you're never going to be able to get them to be champions of free speech mm. because all they want to do is look inward. So I do think that's a more fundamental problem, the shift towards a therapeutic ethos in universities. And if you don't challenge that, it seems to me, you won't be able to engage in debate because if you feel hurt and vulnerable, you're, not going, you're going to creep into your safe space and not get involved in debate. And I do think my fourth point is there's something really positive you can do. And it's funny, you can't go around with a badge saying, I'm in favour of free speech. But what's really missing in universities and everywhere is debate. You know, debate and discussion. 
you get lectures, unlike this one where a lot of people are going to participate, you often get two-hour lectures or whatever, and then two questions. And people don't, somebody said to me, it was really old-fashioned, a debate for and against. So every free speech champion could go and promote debate in every aspect of the university, and it really works. And I mentioned to um, Enea before we started that we did set up a free speech network a couple of years ago because groups were being formed spontaneously by students around the country. And in my own university, some undergraduates set up a, um, a group called Get Off the Fence, and they organised debates on all sorts of topics around the university about dyslexia, about mental health, and it, and it, it really changed the atmosphere. And the students' union responded to it because it wasn't a student union initiative. And this is coming from students, so I think it's a really exciting moment. And my worry is that this policy may not be a mistake. It could be like a lot of other policies we have. It will certainly be approached bureaucratically. But the challenge for um, free speech champions here is to challenge that culture. I say challenge that therapeutic ethos and make sure that people engage in debate. And then you can take all these positive elements forward without just relying on a new bit of government legislation. Thank you. Um, thank you, Dr. Dennis Hayes. I've got lots and lots of questions. And if you have a question, please um, raise your hand and I, I will come to you. And as I said, please um, um, write comments and ask questions in the live chat. So um, I'm firstly going to go to you, um, Dr. Eric Kaufman. Um, what do you say to those people who essentially argue that the debate about free speech and academic freedom is a kind of in the kind of right-wing imagination, that it's essentially there to to um, kind of provide cover for, for academics whose views have not been widely held or um, gained popularity on campus to essentially be protected um, from, from criticism and, and reproach from, from, from students in a kind of campus climate. What, what do you say to that criticism? Um, well, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I mean, criticism is great. I mean, if people wanted to 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 write and contest these ideas, the controversial ideas, I think uh, people would be delighted. We would we would all be delighted. Political minorities would would love to have that. But in fact, what we see are essentially underhanded victimhood tactics, such as trying to get people in trouble or or get them fired or get events, you know, get them threatened, whatever. I, I mean, I've experienced this on a number of occasions. So, I mean, essentially. Um, I, I think that's the, this is a problem, but I mean, I think the the larger problem is not, as I mentioned, a few no platformings as much as uh, this wider chilling effect that affects a majority of of political minorities. I mean, notably gender critical feminists and and conservatives. Um, this is like this is thousands of academics. This is not just a few incidents. And so to claim that oh, it's just a few no platformings is is really a straw man. Um, so I would I would say that. It is a very dishonest argument. I mean, it's, you know, you could say, well, look, you're in China. You can live your life. As long as you don't criticize the regime ideology, you're free. I mean, what's the problem? And there's something very similar going on in, in, in university campuses. As long as you don't touch the sacred cows around race, sex, and gender, and you don't challenge those dogmas, you're fine. Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as you drift towards that territory and challenge the regime, it's, it's the same as in China. So, again, it's a similar type of problem. It hits a small minority of people, and they claim that because that's the case, there is no crisis. I mean, it's just nonsense, really. Well, thank you. Um, so, Dr. Dennis Hayes, so you seem to agree with Eric that um, there is this massive problem, and some of the examples that Dr. Calvin has been giving in terms of people being, you know, disciplined and and, and removed. This is a a kind of very real um, kind of 
experience that academics and often students are having right now. So isn't this an urgent problem that needs something done now to kind of put a halt to it? Not necessarily a kind of broader kind of cultural um, transition that could potentially take decades, if not something that you've written about and other people have written about decades ago. So surely this is something that needs to be done urgently, not, not wait for this imaginary kind of cultural change that may happen in the future. Well, I do think one of the dangers of, with um, this policy is that free speech is now being seen as a right-wing initiative, I mean, even more so. You know, you can, and you've never had so much abuse recently since this policy came into being. But um, and when I was talking to the government about this, I mean, the issue is one of the main things I wrote about it is something called the Shadow University, taking a, um, something out of the, the founding document, really, of FIRE in America, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, is that there were confidentiality clauses throughout universities that means that you know you can't raise issues if you're censored or threatened with disciplinary action you can't raise them because if you do it's a further disciplinary action and that happens to lots and lots of cases and i think you know the, the high profile ones are always about um issues about obviously particularly about trans rights i mean we keep the band list just to keep a track of all the sort of things that happen in universities so no one's denying that that happens but beneath that there is even a more worrying and, and secret um, attack on academics and all staff i mean just it's hard to give an example i did some work with a, a national newspaper to try and publicize all these things and um, we got lots of stories from people but they weren't prepared to break anonymity because if you break your anonymity not only can you be disciplined and, and sacked but you can be you know you could if you've got settlement you can, people can go after you for money and legal fees it's quite an oppressive situation going on in universities and i think you know it can be anything and um, one student that i know was um, turned into the police for instance just because um, he knew too much about um, um, what's going on in nigeria and with the chibuk girls and other things because they thought he must be a he was white, by the way, but he thought he, he might have um, Islamist connections. So, and that was done confidentially a long time ago now. But there's lots and lots of issues where anything you say, almost anything you say, can be take people can take umbrage to and take offence to, and that's why the, the offence thing is really, really important. It, and obviously, people do get offended by the, the topical things now. But I, I, I just know from all our casework that you know you're not safe what you say. Almost, it's not just you know. I always give it as a test. I give it with our HR departments, which are a problem in this. So if you don't think there's a the problem, go onto Twitter and say, I believe there are men and women, just two sexes, and see what happens to you. Well, so so then you are agreeing that the problem is then in, incredibly urgent and, and people are um, being expelled, and, and even if it is anonymous. So isn't there something powerful about perhaps the government, uh, one of the most powerful institutions in the country, making a... Um, overt statement about what this country should believe when it comes to freedom of speech. Could that not be a kind of counterweight to the kind of culture, a kind of political institution taking a much stronger position? Well, the universities, I mean, I was often being tempted to use that because the Office for Students already had that power. And as a result of the spiked um, free speech rankings that you know, I was the advisor on, you know, the idea of um, safe spaces came up and Joe Johnson said he's going to give the Office for Students power to do that. And their statement about free speech on their website is actually very, very good. Mm. But what will happen is universities will just deal with it bureaucratically. Mm. Now, I know that universities are already going to log all the things they've done to defend free speech. So when the legislation comes out, there'll be a, 
a, bo- a tick list of things. And if you read the legislation, in, it's, we haven't got the legislation yet in the policy paper. Of course, it's only academic freedom within the law, which of course constantly expanding what's legal and illegal and what's illegal to say. But also, this, there's a one small clause where it says it doesn't apply to all things. There will be exceptional circumstances. And I think they may have prevent in mind, but I'm not sure. So we don't know yet whether it will be effective. But given that what's happened with the REF and TEF and all the bureaucratic things that universities deal with, they'll just deal with this in a bureaucratic way. And uh, isn't that a, a very good point, Dr. Kaufman, that, that how does this particular legislation deal with the, the underlying cause, such as the self-censorship? You know, if students, for example, aren't even speaking um, in their seminars, how, how does this actually address that very real um, sense that you can't say that? Well, yeah, I just want to start off by uh, saying that I really think that the kind of libertarian uh, route is just not, uh, it's just not going to work. I, I mean, I think we have to take a longer term view on this, that we've had speech codes in the U.S. since the late 1980s, for example, uh, you know, bias response teams of some form or another since the 90s. Um, we've had political discrimination going on for decades. The idea that somehow there's going to be some spontaneous... I, I, I certainly very much endorse um, civil society movements. I mean, I think we've got to do both. We've got to build the free speech culture, but uh, to sacrifice another generation of, of, of political minorities to, to just be, just for some purity of libertarian principles, I think extremely, extremely unfair, number one. Number two, there was, a good, there was an American professor who really put it best when he said... The punishment is the process. In other words, accusers are free to lob charge after charge after charge without any sort of repercussions, dragging you through these various processes. And and, and let's say you get off every time. You may well get off every time, and you may be helped out by uh, Dennis's organization, which is fantastic, and the Free Speech Union, which is fantastic. But the problem, in a way, is that just – in a way, they've still won because the chilling effects – are entrenched. In other words, if you want to lose sleep and you want to lose months and you want to pay money, go ahead and, and challenge some of these dogmas, right? So uh, the only way around it is proactive policy. So with this new government policy, if the, and again, the OFS was staffed by people who politically didn't want to touch this issue. The, the second part of this will, will be the staffing of the OFS to get somebody in there who is proactive uh, and also this sort of whistleblower capacity that, that people can be whistleblowing on their universities. So the universities can be under much more sustained pressure in a systematic way. If it is, it is, so I disagree with Dennis that it's going to be a dick tick box exercise. And I also disagree that somehow government action takes uh, energy out of a movement. I mean, you can see with equalities, for example, where both the legislative and the grassroots movements, uh, often radical activists, were pushing at the same time one enables the other. And, and I think similarly, uh, I don't think this will take anything away from free speech activism, but I do think it is it is becoming a, you know, a serious uh, justice issue. And in addition, we've got to start tackling the spiral of, of um, political discrimination as well. And I think that really will come from a much more strenuous attempt um, on the part of universities to ensure political neutrality and get rid of political discrimination. That, that is simply not existing. As it stands, universities are overtly political. They are overtly biased in their ideological leanings. Uh, that has to come to an end, or we're, ne- we're never going to break the spiral, really. But isn't this really just a question of where your own personal boundaries lie? Because, I mean, would you not regard there to be some limits in terms of what research 
um, certain academics could do? And, and is, isn't it just a question of um, an institution has taken a decision that certain areas of research they regard as perhaps settled or or that is their particular boundary and if and if you want to kind of fight for your for your right to research then you could either be independent or you can look for another institution it, it isn't it kind of imposing uh, a set of, um, of of boundaries on a university when it is a kind of open institution that should be relatively autonomous well institutions can be captured um, and there are many situations in history where um, authoritarianism and threats to liberty come out of the middle layer of society of institutions, uh, such as universities, uh, such as corporations, etc. And, and in those situations, government can actually act as a guarantor of liberty. I mean, the universities in the United States South that were segregated, for example, didn't allow black students the opportunity to exercise their freedom. The federal government had to come in and desegregate them, um, and, and that was an example of where government can actually enable liberty. Uh, we're in a similar situation um, where you know you have a, a very highly well-organized group of activists who are holding the universities to ransom to some degree. They they are using uh, weaponizing taboos in order to sort of leverage their power uh, over the academy. So yeah, I think that um, I, I really just think um, until you have a regulator that can sort of change the incentives to, to such an extent that, that universities will not be allowed, they can't bend to the wishes of these activists. Until that happens, it'll continue, it will just continue to happen, I would argue. On response, I just think um, what's happened, the universities have been occupied by various um, left-wingish sort of policies. The commitment to social justice, social mobility, the promotion of critical race theory, unconscious bias training, all that sort of thing. To me, it happens within a therapeutic culture. It's the sort of thing you need to give people help. That seems to be what, what's happening. It's, they certainly are dominant. But the only choice you have is to stand up against them. You know, I oppose... I mean, one of the things I've said is that in every situation where universities are involved in any training, they do it with um, arguments for and against it. So if you have critical race theorists or you, you've been unconscious bias, do the arguments against it and try and build a culture of debate. Otherwise, it won't work. I still think, you know, I would say to all academics, and somebody put it as a footnote when I mentioned something about the new legislation, the best way to defend free speech is to speak up. That's what I want academics and students to do. Speak up, make public these attacks, and speak up on whatever issue you want to speak on. I mean, I just want to say, I mean, I just think that we're people are human in a way, and I think what we know of human behavior is that people are not willing to, you know, to expect people to actually defy these powerful taboos and, and accusations is, I just don't think it's realistic. And if you look at the survey data I've got, the younger academics and PhDs are significantly less tolerant, significantly more inclined toward emotional safety. Now, we have to change that culture, but that means things are going to get worse long before they get better. And, and I think the public who's paying the bill for these universities has the right to tell them what values are going to be prioritized, and it's not going to be emotional safety. Now, if another government wants to campaign on emotional safety and pay that bill, that's fine. But in a democracy, um, the government and the law prevails. So that's how I see it. But 
Eric, don't you understand why people think that this is essentially kind of politically motivated? I mean, the government is widely known for promoting the kind of counter-terrorism or counter-extremism prevent strategy, when actually they actually require academics to report students that have so-called extremist views and so on. And we're hearing now about kind of restricting the kind of right to protest and organize. Isn't this, you know, arguably kind of get, get, give in one hand and take in the, in the other and actually, you know, weaponizing a kind of um, climate at the moment which seems to, um, anytime people talk about free speech, they get lots and lots of attention and, and the government potentially is, is using that to capitalise on that moment for political gain. That, that is a, an argument that people put forward. Well, you're absolutely right. There's, there's inconsistency and the government needs to be consistent on this issue and treat uh, you know, people who, who want to study Israel in the Middle East and, and, and other topics uh, exactly the same way. And I think actually this framework will allow people who who are falsely accused, you know, who are prevented from doing their research by prevent, actually to appeal that. And, and actually the prevent is not as, as restrictive as universities are interpreting it. So it will help more scholars of the Middle East and Israel also to have their freedom. And I think that's really important. Um, but the other thing I would say is that um, these middle layer type institutions, you know, it, one, of, one of the charges that the government is politicizing this issue uh, is, is generating a culture war. The culture war has been waged within these institutions by the left modernist activists for decades, and it's, it's been ramping up. So the people who started and are waging this culture war are in the institutions. The old, uh, For example, a left-wing government like the Democrats in the U.S., all they have to do is nothing and just allow their activists to let rip in these institutions. The difference is that the other side actually needs, the only route they have for any kind of challenge to this is through an elected democratic government, which, by the way, is able to be scrutinized by the media in a way that is not true of committee meetings behind closed doors. So I, I really don't think that's, a, you know, I, I just don't think that's a persuasive argument. Um, so, yeah, we, we've got lo lots and lots of questions. I'm just going to ask one more um, question to you. Um, Dr. Hayes, before I open to, to the audience. Um, so you, you keep talking about, obviously, um, you know, students start setting up free speech societies, people standing up and academics standing up. Obviously, you know, I, I completely agree. And that's part of what, you know, the Free Speech Champions Project um, hopes to, to support and to, to, to encourage. But the reality is, you know, that, that, that you're holding on a hope. And, and actually, this has been a problem, um, as we emphasise, that has been going on for decades. You know, what evidence do you have that, that that will, one, occur, and, and two, do you have any specific um, things that you would um, say that could actually um, spontaneously encourage that process to happen? Because haven't we all been waiting for that for, for a long time? Well, I think it's quite new. I mean, Eric made the point that younger people are, are more um, concerned about Bit more conformist and more concerned about their emotions. That's because they've come out of a school system which is essentially based around safeguarding and never being hurt and never being offended. And I think so. I don't think it's. I think it's quite new actually. I think there's a new shift and the evidence, you know, of you know our little heroes, heroes and zeros that we do. There's lots of people standing up. You know, one girl in Oxford sets up a free speech society. This is really exciting. This is new. So that's the evidence. And I think, but the the downside is that unless you recognise the therapeutic turn and the fact that people just want to self-express rather than debate, and then you'll never be able to get to the, the, the heart of the problem. 
And I think you, know, you, you can just challenge as, as it goes along. Academics as well, I mean, that's the real issue. I do think it's sad that you you say it's not a long-term project if people start speaking up. Because once one person speaks up, it has a really good sort of domino effect. And, and you can see that happening all over in, in different universities. And we have... Um, um, correspondence in every university and we hear of it all the time so I mean the pandemic is a pause right that's a different situation but I do think you know come next September I think you know it'll be really fertile ground for the free speech champions to, to get into universities and build a culture of debate. Thank you um, so we're now going to be taking questions and um, the first question is from Nastasia. Yeah. My question um, was essentially around um, whether whether this uh, introduction of policy is going to um, help to increase the political and viewpoint diversity. Um, of course, we've got to a point now where we do have um, a diversity of you know um, ethnic um, ethnic um, contribution, um, etc. Um, but you know that that was caused by a mix of. I assume like some bureaucratic involvement and also some good arguments. Um, and I think that potentially we have this bureaucratic involvement with the government policy, but there isn't a lot in there, you know, about positive argument, effective arguments that promote free speech. Um, I think the main ones that are proposed are around slippery slope and, you know, values of the enlightenment with the latter not really being defined um, and the former not really being very effective. Um, I want to ask if you sort of have uh, arguments for free speech that you have found particularly effective um, and whether you think the free speech champion that is employed will, you know, have these arguments um, be used. Thank you, Nastasia. We'll, we'll take um, a few more and then we'll go back to um, Dr. Hayes and Dr. Kaufman. And the next question from Thomas Inns. Hello, Dr. Kaufman. Uh, my question is for you. Uh, given that this government has a, shall we say, mixed record on freedom of expression, especially considering uh, the recent anti-protest bill that passed Parliament, do you think that a an official appointed by a government can be truly neutral, or do you think that there will always be some bias towards the government's position? Thank you. Um, Daniel Sharp? Hi. Um, yeah, I mean, I want to kind of echo some of those those points. I mean, I think I just think it's quite dangerous to you know leave uh, this whole matter to to government officials. Uh, somebody mentioned the hate crime bill in Scotland in the chat, uh, which just recently went through. Uh, this is what happens when you when you leave it to the whims of parliaments and government departments. Um, I, and I don't I don't know what the solution is, but in terms of positive the positive um, solution, but I just I'm just too wary of government having that influence and control. Um, I think it would be better if if we could campaign and convince people, which might be utopian, I, I don't know, but I think that's the better way. I don't think that giving the government that power is either desirable or, uh, you know, useful. It's not, I don't think it's going to be very effective. Thank you, Daniel. Um... Nilu? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm more looking for words of encouragement over in Canada, um, where a lot of 
these free speech concepts don't exist both in a on a legislative level but also um socially and politically and you know where where i live in the jurisdiction i'm in conservatives don't even show up on the ballot it's not even an option to to vote for them because it's just such a um minority and so going back to i can't remember who said it but we were talking about um i think it was kaufman about political diversity and guaranteeing political diversity and how important that is how um and i guess for for mr hayes as well how do you go about advocating for free speech when your um, government is very openly um, against it. We'll take um, a couple more before we go back to Dr. Kaufman, Dr. Hayes. Um, Chrissy does. Oh, hi. Um, yeah, okay. I, I want to um, bring up something which um, hasn't been mentioned yet, but I think might be quite important, which is the um, the loss of the role of what the university is for. Uh, I mean, part of me thinks, what is so special about academics? What is, why is it more important to have free speech uh, universities than anywhere else? And in a way, that's sort of the point, because um, lots of different, lots of societies have um, valued the academy as something which can be outside in some way of the normal course of events. Even in medieval Europe, there was a certain way in which the universities could uh, blaspheme. They could go beyond what, uh, what was acceptable elsewhere. Um, so that's a particular and peculiar value, I think, of, of universities. And what uh, what I'm concerned about is I think that that part, part of what's been going on is it's the killing of the goose that lays the golden eggs. Because that, you know, the, the, the universities having people that are completely free to debate and consider all sorts of bizarre ideas completely without, uh, anything, beyond, without any reason other than a pure love of wisdom, the original meaning of philosophy, uh, by the way, um, that that can give so many uh, brilliant advantages to society because we don't know what they're going to be beforehand. That is why they have been valued traditionally. And that, has been, that I think, is being lost by the expansion and the commercialization of universities, where students are no longer students going to, to, to find out how to love wisdom, how to love knowledge, but are rather are paying customers. Um, and that's how they are seen. That's how they see themselves. And the, with the degrees being um, seen as a, an employment asset rather than rather than uh, than, than anything else, um, in many ways, I think that the politics and the issues are, are beyond the uh, out, not the point of it really. I can see how the therapeutic and the meritocratic ideal fits in with this um, with this idea, but um, yeah, it's a big it's a big thing. I will just leave it at that. I think. Thank you. And we'll take one more question and then go back to the um, speakers and then we'll come back out for questions again. Um, from Ewan Clayton. I just wanted to ask, um, how would you feel it's possible to actually prove that free speech issues are going on? Um, obviously, it's such a subjective issue because um, at the moment there's an event going on um, with the Cambridge Radical Feminist Union. 
and they are replatforming deplatformed um, speakers. But a lot of the reasons that these women um, had their um, platform taken away was not because unions or the universities were actually taking away their right to speak. There was a lot of other more, um, more less less um, top down um, issues. For example, some of them were told that there was a safety risk to them or other people. Um, some of them were uh, deplatformed because other speakers refused to speak when they were there. So I, I wanted to ask, how could you possibly legislate against something like this? Mm. No, that that's a really really good point um, about the whole you know I'm not going to share a platform with this person. Um, so yeah, Dr. Um, Kaufman, do you want to pick up on any of the points that have been raised? Yeah, really really rich set of questions. Um, well, the, the, the first one question about um, the Tories and and their views on protest and uh, revenge and other things, and I think that's absolutely right, uh, and, and I think. My hope is that by going in on free speech, they're going to be in a situation where they where they will be confronted with these any of these contradictions, and the free speech side will prevail for the left as well as for the right. I actually think that will be the case. That once they go in uh, with this legislation, it's going to put them in a position where they can't uh, abridge free speech. Now, the other thing is it is important to distinguish universities from non-university settings like schools and museums and, and uh, public squares and so on. That is, is higher in universities. Now, it I think it should be as high as possible in these other venues as well, by the way. But there is a special duty in universities for the protection of free speech, um, which doesn't occur, for example, in schools in, to the same degree. Or So academic freedom is an issue in universities in a way it is not as much of an issue uh, in schools where there are other considerations uh, which have weight. Um, in terms of the, this point has been brought up again, the government isn't, isn't the solution. And I think, I really think that's wrongheaded and, and I don't mind saying that. I mean, I understand the point. Government is often a threat to liberty. Uh, but in, the, in, in other cases, it's these intermediate institutions which pose the greatest threat to liberty and governments can protect liberty. I mean, if you think of a, a school that is uh, taken over by an Islamist network or a police department taken over by, by a sort of, uh, by a corrupt mafia-linked network. Again, there are situations where uh, governments can step in to actually guarantee liberty. And I think this is one of them, in addition to the fact that, of course, the university is paying the bill. I also want to say one other thing, which is that uh, the wider society is more liberal uh, than the university uh, on, on many of these issues. And that is one of the reasons why Part of this is to allow that wider society to shape the norms inside the university. And this has occurred in the past. Cass Sunstein's book on conformity talks about uh, where government regulation can actually show what society expects and what their norms are in places where those norms don't hold. Now, it could be, I mean, he talks about smoking and seatbelt laws, which eventually then became norms. They started out as regulations. Now, it's obviously a dicey thing. You don't want to just regulate it. You have to you know, it's not all one or all the other. I think in this case, the regulation will help to create that, will help the culture. It's not going to harm the culture. I mean, yes, some people will claim that this is a conservative thing, but if it becomes, particularly if this can become a bipartisan issue, that if labor tries to undo 
uh, some of these policies that they they take flack in the media, maybe they'll say, actually, you know what, we're going to leave this in place. It'll become a bipartisan issue. It'll help left-wing speech as well as right-wing speech. That's kind of where we want to get to. But the problem is when you have an illiberal uh, institution that has been captured or where you have intimidation going on from a small minority, the only way to actually guarantee individual liberty is by curtailing, in a way you are restricting institutional autonomy in order to protect individual autonomy. And, and you don't want to restrict institutional autonomy more than you have to, uh, but where they are essentially repressing individuals, then you, have to, you do have to do that. Um, uh, there was a question on no platforming, I think Ewan, and I'm trying to remember what, how would you prove the academic freedom crisis? And I think you can prove it in, in, in a lot of the surveys where you ask people, is your, is your department a hostile climate for your beliefs? Do you self-censor? Um, you know, when we, when we have sort of eight in 10 uh, leave voting academics that are uh, not comfortable sharing their views with colleagues or, or nine out of 10 Trump supporting academics in the US, I mean, this is a huge problem because conversations aren't taking place that need to take place. Uh, so I think it's pretty easy to show those massive chill effects for gender critical feminist conservatives, perhaps some elements of the left that deal with Israel, that deal with Middle East issues as well. Thank you, Dr. Kaufman. Um, Dr. Hayes, do you want to come back on anything? Yeah, I, I want to come back on the question about, um, well, about action really, because um, to me, this is a, a new Labour policy that we've got here. You know, one thing that New Labour taught us was that you know you have a bureaucratic solution to everything, rather than deal with it. But what is actually, but what takes things forward is action. What's changed? What changed things in the world is people campaigning. That's what changes things. And people rewrite history backwards. They start to say, "Oh, we now have this policy," but the policies come out of a lot of political action. You know, the, the fight for equality. Um, was fought on the streets and with people. It wasn't just somebody dreamt up a policy. You're confusing the, the, the um, outcome with struggle, and then you forget the struggle. There is a struggle going on, and you know, um, somebody made the point about what arguments are there. We should have a really good workshop, actually, on what arguments you can have for free speech. I mean, one of the things I always say, there's a couple of funny ones, if, if you don't have free speech, the, the point about it, if you don't allow me to criticise your views, you don't even know if your views are true. Sort of million point, you know. That's the foundational thing. If you don't allow your views to be criticised, you you don't even understand them yourself, and you, you know you you can't even hold them to be true. But there are funny ones you can use. One argument I, I always use is to say to people um, about the word "but." You can always say it has a funny function, the word "but," because people say, "I'm in favour of free speech," and wait for the "but," and what the "but" does. <laughs> It deletes the rest of it, so you're not in favour of free speech. And that's what it means when you say, I'm, I'm in favour of free speech, but you're not really in favour of free speech. And there are lots, I mean, it's good to tease out, there's lots of arguments you can use, and I think some very good one. And I think, um, I just don't see how, let me give you an example of how this won't work, right? In teacher education, it's dominated by student-centred um, approaches to education. They hate knowledge-based approaches, you know? They associate it with Gove and give... Now, no one would ever be employed in a, in a teacher education um, department if they promoted knowledge-based education. That's true. So I agree with Eric on that entirely. So how do you deal with it? How can you legislate for this? You have to have the argument out. You have to have the argument out, which, by the way, has happened. There are knowledge-based networks in, around schools that are everywhere starting to have a debate. If you don't have the debate, 
you know, it'll go on. They'll they'll cover it up as they will do. They they'll cover up the curriculum that is supposed to be subject based, and they'll go on teaching what they want because they won't have the arguments because they know they're right. So you, unless you have the arguments, this will just continue. You can't legislate to change uh, an ideological view in the subject like education. You have to have the arguments. Um, thank you, Dr. Hayes. So we're going to take some more questions now, um, Brad. Hello everyone. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank both speakers for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you both here and I'm sure it won't be the last time. Uh, my question is for you, Eric. I'm sympathetic with your position. I'm a master's uh, student in English and I've never covered, you know, any of the greats, Joy Chesterton, Lawrence Wolfe. Uh, and in my opinion, it's in virtue of the fact that the curriculum has been adjusted um, by, uh, because of political motivations. But is it a problem that certain academic departments themselves are politically biased. Surely no form of educa education, especially at a university level, can be completely free from ideological biases. So is it even possible to address these biases without imposing on academic freedom itself? Thank you, Brad. Um, Luke? Hey, my question is for Dr. Kaufman. And, um, Dr. Hayes already touched on this briefly, but it, it's mainly around the, the seeming contradiction um, in the legislation that's that's been introduced. I I, I just see, uh, as, as Dr. Hayes said, I, I see multiple layers of, of legislation and of bureaucracy, uh, and I fear that um, what's happened is another, this new piece of legislation has been introduced, and it actually contradicts things like um, things like hate speech laws and, and Prevent and the Equalities Act. Um, and it seems to me that it may be a more beneficial uh, solution to actually stop repealing this this legislation that's already in place rather than introducing more legislation. Um, uh, do you foresee a situation where, for example, governments uh, who are tr the government's trying to get involved in um, a piece of free speech um, uh, a, a free speech issue that's going on? And um, actually, the, the university turn around and say, hang on a minute, we're, we're, we're only enforcing the laws that you've given us against this person. Um, we, we, we think they may be guilty of, of hate speech or, or something like that. Um, so do, do you agree with me that there's, that there's a contradiction there? And, and could you foresee a, a situation like that? Thank you. Uh, here's Ben. Hi, am I unmuted? Yeah, um, thanks very much. It's a fascinating discussion. Um, I just want to talk a little bit, well, just ask a question about the value of diversity, uh, viewpoint diversity, and the chilling effect. Because, um, I mean, take this scenario. Supposing someone were to say um, there aren't enough creationists teaching biology, or there aren't enough Holocaust deniers teaching European history. Now, nobody, I take it, would think that that was a legitimate question, because we all know the truth about young Earth creationism and Holocaust denial. Now, some of these people we're complaining about, and I, I share the concerns, by the way, of the speakers, uh, will say, well, doesn't everyone know that racism is at the heart of society? Doesn't everyone know that, that society is profoundly misogynistic? Why should, why should we give any more uh, space to people who deny these things than we would to young Earth creationists or Holocaust deniers? Now, that sounds crazy, but what are, my question really is, how do we delineate the boundaries of reasonable disagreement versus the boundaries of crazy disagreement, because people are not going to agree about what those boundaries are. And that touches on the chilling effect, 
I think we all find, I certainly find it slightly uncomfortable to have lunch with somebody who takes a view that's radically different from mine ideologically, because you can't joke, you can't laugh, you've got to be, watch out what you say. So when people say, oh, I, um, conservatives can't, you know, people don't want to have lunch with Brexiteers because they feel uncomfortable around them. That's actually quite human, feeling a bit uncomfortable around people. But the reason they feel uncomfortable around people is that those people don't think that their views are legitimate. So what we need is some sense, some agreed idea of what's a legitimate disagreement and what's not. Once we agree that we can have legitimate disagreements, we can feel more comfortable around people who disagree with us legitimately. A bit of a complex question, but anyway, thanks. Um, we'll take uh, one more, then we'll go back to the speakers and then we'll come back for another round of questions in a bit. Um, Dylan? Uh, hi. Um, my question is for, um, uh, well, I guess I have an observation first and then a question. Um, I guess I would observe first that uh, in in terms of a political or a governmental uh, activism on behalf of free speech, I think uh, it's worth recognizing that that would probably look different in the UK versus in America. And I think that this this particular issue that we've met to talk about, specifically the idea of a free speech champion, does strike me as a particularly bureaucratic uh, answer to the to the problem. And that leads me to my question, which is to uh, Dr. Kaufman, which is, um, does your desire for government activism or like a political ownership of the idea of free speech relate to your ideas in um, White Shift about how white Western ideas are not really being taken seriously or considered in the political landscape right now? Yes, so um, we'll go to Dr. Hayes first. Just on the question that was asked before about no platforming, I do think um, you know that no platforming has virtually stopped in a formal way, you know, unless you're the director of SOAS, which is really affected with that. I think... Um, it's in these small campaigns and little um, um, groups that have started to do it. I mean, it is worth saying, of course, that students' unions are completely part of management now. So they're on every committee, they're on appointments committees. They're not separate. I mean, when we did the spike rankings, we thought, should we include the student unions? But now they're they're embedded in the university. They're part of management. They're not separate institutions. So one good thing in the legislation is to make them stop the spurious defence of being an independent organisation and make them adopt free speech, which some universities have already done. So I think you know, that's one. There are some good bits that have come out of the legislation. I do think you can just try and have some of the arguments. I mean, obviously, the equalities laws, a lot of things, I don't know how they're going to work all this out in terms of any real meaningful policy. Because what do you do about hate speech? Hate speech is free speech. You, know, you should be allowed to hate. You know, and you argue with people. That's that's how that's what speech is about. You utter what do you think is to be true, and then people attack you and criticise you. That's what speech is. And I just think, um, you know, I don't see how they'll get around that with any, any rules. It's been, it appears saying, you know, it won't, the definition won't resolve any of these issues, you know. Where do we start with the flat earth um, people? Do we employ people who believe in a flat earth in universities? Well, nobody ever asks those sort of questions, but there are probably people who do believe in absurd things like that. So you can't have a dividing line. You have to argue it out in specific instances because there are creationists, by the way, who teach biology and science. Mm -hmm. you know, and you know, the wacky views come out, but it doesn't really harm things. You, know, you can deal with them by debate. I'd rather mm -hmm. that they were there and you can have the arguments out. It's when they conceal them. You know, it's not self-censorship. It's literally hiding your views. 
And the, as if you take the Brexit one, it was really annoying. In my university, only four people that I could identify were Brexit supporters in an area which is 70 to 80 percent Brexit. The students learn very quickly from their lecturers not to speak in class. So, but I deliberately walked around and tormented the remainers in the institution who still hate me forever for what they did. So just a bit of a bit of bottle and actually get out and say things. You know, if you're an 18, 19 year old at a university, you should be able to provoke and not worry about what happens. You know, and the only reason you're not going to do that is because you've been taught in school not to do that. So the challenge is just get people debating, be brave enough to stand up and just you know, you know, if you think of Freshers' Week in a lot of universities now, they call it Welcome Week, you know, and they're really concerned about how upset you'll be, and they stop political groups from meeting. So turn that over and get some debates going, because debate is really interesting. Because free speech is problematic, because the, it's the tied with a, um, a right-wing um, brush now because of the legislation. But you can say, let's have debates. Let's nobody's going to disagree with that, and then get a real debate for and against, and have a real battle and that seems to be the way we should move forward I keep saying that i'm sorry about that <laughs> um thank you um dr hayes um do you want to come back on anything dr kaufman yeah well i mean i guess i would just again draw this distinction between the the battle of ideas which i wholeheartedly support dennis in uh, i mean i'm you're preaching to the converted here on the free speech culture we have to build that free speech culture uh, but at the same time, we can't just sacrifice existing generations. And I think this is where we perhaps disagree, is that um, universities, which are publicly funded either directly or indirectly, um, governments oversee them. It's right and proper that there's a political debate um, and that they reflect the priorities in the law and in the uh, in the democracy. And the other thing, too, I'd say is, Yes, there are. I mean, Luke made this point about bureaucracy. Um, the problem is there's going to be some bureaucracy operating, right? And the question is, you mentioned hate speech laws and equality laws and, and repeal. In a way, I, I think, yes, we, we can talk about a utopia where these things are hugely stripped down or repealed. I just think it's very difficult practically uh, to get there right away. Uh, and I think the, what's, what's going on now is a debate over which laws take priority over which laws when they come into conflict. And this is where you need to have legal clarity that the academic freedom takes priority over the hate speech, the equality stuff, et cetera, unless there is some, you know, you have to specify the thresholds, but really it has to be taking priority. So this is about tweaking the priority of, of different laws, making it clear that universities can't just make up their own laws, which tend to, to be biased against free speech and in favor of the therapeutic culture uh, that Dennis talks about. Although I would add that that therapeutic culture really only applies to some parts of the student population, that, that if you are from a group that is not uh, historically disadvantaged, then you actually have it tougher than, than past generations. So there's certainly no therapy for you. Uh, but anyway, I, I think that um, this is an ideological issue. It's basically, do, are we going to prioritize uh, academic freedom or are we going to prioritize emotional safety and some kind of psychic egalitarianism? I think the government needs to make a stand reflecting the population in favor of the, the freedom argument. But at the same time, that doesn't take away from the need for civil society action to do the same. I, I peers, well, Dylan, you made this point about UK, USA. Um, now, what I'd say is that in the US, you know, obviously you saw some activity. I think it's very inco incoherent. You know, you have some things which are blatantly anti-academic freedom, like Iowa going after tenure and 
uh, some of the anti-Semitism definitions that are being pushed by the Trump administration, uh, at the same time as trying to ban critical race theory entirely out of university. These are very kind of anti-academic freedom. Uh, but there are some good things like banning free speech zones. I think it just has to, it's probably going to be at the state level, uh, for, at least for a while, but it needs to be much more coherent and much more principled than it has been. Uh, now, you mentioned this link to white shift. Well, only insofar as the um, many of the forces that led to the rise of populism and polarization come from the same forces that are leading, leading to the rise of cancel culture. That is, not being able to discuss things like immigration or uh, grooming gangs or whatever means that the only people who will discuss them are Tommy Robinson or UKIP or whoever. And so essentially by shutting down debate, you open up space for the populist entrepreneur. So there is a link there. The more free speech is restricted, the more room there is for populists and po polarization. Um, Piers, uh, you mentioned about creationism and standards. I, I think that, you know, I think there are enough safeguards in the hiring process and in the curriculum you know, students would switch out of a course that was just about creationism. But it's worth saying that, there, in a way, you can be irrational and on the left, and you're fine in academia. You can talk about Afrocentrism and be fine in academia. You can't be irrational on the right. So there is, there is clearly a double standard. I don't think those people should be in academia at all, but it's very much a slant right now. Yeah. Um, so... What I'm seeing so far is that, you know, on, on the one hand, Dennis is kind of saying, you know, that there is a problem that we kind of need to focus on the cultural change and get people debating. And, and, and Dr. Kaufman is saying, well, we can't sacrifice a generation. The problem is here now. Um, and, and it's not one or the other. The government intervention doesn't stop the fact that we still need some kind of civil society response. Um, I just got a quick question to Dr. Hayes. You, you mentioned we need to get people debating and stand up. But as you've just seen, you know, this is incredibly hard. What, how, how do we do it in practical terms? Not just saying that you know we need to do it. We all perhaps agree that we need greater debate and discussion. But how do we actually do that? Um, and, and that's uh, one question before I go back to the um, to the audience. Well, I do think there's something. Um, it's coming out of what Eric says. There's nothing um, different about the, the, the new generation. I mean, they're not snowflakes. I mean, the university it treats them as snowflakes so it can control them. They control your emotions. It's a terrible situation. I agree with all the stuff about ideology, but they, you know, by seeing you as vulnerable, they can really control you. And then you get a spurious authority by saying that you are vulnerable. So I do think that's a, that's a big issue, but it's not rocket science. I did a talk to the National Association of Scholars and a student asked the same question. What you do is you just meet with a few friends in a pub. I know we can't go to pubs yet, but in a, a month, and say, what shall we do? St start a society. You know, if you want to start tackling the student union, to me, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. Sorry, Keenan, he's still here. Uh, but, um, you know, just set up a group yourself. A few friends can build into a big thing. So just have some faith. That's what I made my point about human agency, the fact that people can act and do things for themselves. But the whole of the institution says, we need to, to care for you, keep you in cotton wool. You, know, you can't act for yourself. And, and you know, I'll just give you one example is that the student experience, you know, the whole university now organises itself. It's not just a small group, Eric. The whole university, every university organises the student experience for students. They used to go out and do it themselves. But now they get sucked into this thing and half of it is therapeutic. So all you have to do, it seems to me, is, is just find a couple of like-minded people, or one, and see what you can do, and experiment with it. 
you know, you know, once upon a time, we could say we're going to have a picket. And I mean, one of the things that's changed, isn't it, in recent times is all these letters. You know, thinking everybody's doing an open letter against this, an open letter against that. And that's because, because you can't go out and demonstrate, because normally you would have gone out and demonstrated, but now you don't. But, you know, so I think yeah, that's just a, an observation. But I think you can play, do anything. You, know, you can start a petition, do anything to start raising issues. I think, you know, I mean, if anybody's in education, just start a debate about knowledge-based education versus um, student-centered education. That is a tremendous thing to do. It's not trivial. You know, it really does change people. I mean, what one of our debating societies is: Does dyslexia exist? You know, where three or four hundred students in every university diagnosed automatically as dyslexia. Or I'm breaking the law by saying this: Dyslexia does not exist. You know, there's a big debate about it. So you can pick topics for debate that can really change people's perception of their own vulnerability. For instance, you know, do you need petting zoos and puppy farms and all this stuff that is everywhere in universities? The answer is no. Thank you, Dr. Hayes. Um, we're going to go to Matthew. Hi. Um, yeah, so I suppose to do with the debates as well is that the, so I study philosophy and we're encouraged to debate a lot, but the debates we have and the material we're often given is a left-wing view versus another left-wing view. We're never exposed to a right-wing view or a centrist view or we don't get exposed to those things if you don't know where to look. You don't know about those ideas because, you know, the university is spoon feeding you a certain political viewpoint. Uh, and then also, I think, is it not a wider question of uh, people's understanding of rights? That if, as a society, people have the right to freedom of expression and to infringe that right is already breaking the law is why do you need a champion uh, i know that in the press release it said that it would incentivize universities and institutions and administrators to uh, follow up on their already legally required uh, recommendations but if they're already breaking the law by not doing it why do you need a champion to to deal with that if i broke the law the police would turn up it wouldn't be a champion that would turn up. So I guess, yeah, is it a wider understanding of rights for citizens? Thank you, Matthew. Um, Sam? Sam Bayless? Hi. Um, I wonder if either of the um, speakers share um, my concern, perhaps, that uh, this appointment could potentially alienate students even further away from supporting freedom of speech. Um, you know, you have um, students who are overwhelmingly, um, again, well, certainly didn't vote Conservative in uh, last year and do not support Boris Johnson's government. Um, and then you have Boris Johnson's government who are going to be appointing this champion. And so I wonder whether you think, yeah, there is this chance that um, students would look at this figure and actually be um, somewhat, yeah, even more turned against um, supporting freedom of speech because this person wouldn't represent them. Um, I saw, uh, I think, three Tory MPs in the Telegraph endorsed um, Calvin Robinson for the role, um, who's at Policy Exchange, um, and I think he's a buddy of Lawrence Fox at the Reclaim Party. Um, and I know, for instance, you know, if he were to get the job, that would, I mean, that would infuriate so many students. And yeah, so I wonder, do you think... Um, 
that this appointment could risk turning students even further away from believing in freedom of speech. Thank you, Sam. Um, Harry McKenna. Um. We, we we can't hear you, um, Harry, sorry. Um, I'll, could you say something? Yeah, we, we can't hear you, it's cracking up. Um, I'll come back to you again if it, um, if it. Sorry, my. Uh... Hello, Harry, are you there? Sorry, we'll, we'll have to come back to you. Um, Daniel Staten, oh. Daniel. Hi, everybody. Uh, Danny here. I think both of you have raised really good points, and uh, I think you're both right in the sense that we can do both at the same time. Uh, my question to you is, isn't this problem much bigger than universities, it, the free speech issue and failure to engage in political debate? Um, I... I worry that the Conservative government are using the universities as a scapegoat to sort of distract from the real problem, which is a, a really biased media, um, one that doesn't engage in political debate that often, and the echo chambers of social media, which a lot of young people are in those echo chambers and at university, it seems to to uh, correlate a little bit in my head. I just wondered what your what your thoughts are on that. And uh, if I could ask another question, just to be greedy. Um, the left tends to, in my mind, group people together and put labels on them. And do you think that that's to blame for the lack of personal agency on the, on the bar of students? Um, thank you, Dan. Um, Anne Faraday? Um yeah, it's a question for uh, Dennis, um, really, um, because I really agree with the points that you're making about the fact that any action that government takes, is it, it's not going to resolve any of the problems. We need students, we need academics to be able to organise. And I think that there's a lot of encouraging debates and so on that are being, that are being held. But... I have to say, I kind of like the expressivist intent in uh, bringing about this kind of free speech champion. Um, I don't think it's going to be an answer to any of the things, but I do kind of like the idea of um, coming out and saying that free speech is important on campus. and. As Eric said, you know, the, the campuses should represent values that are more than just those of a minority of people on, on campus. It's a bit like the way that I don't really go for the public honours system, but I kind of loved it when Catherine's, Kathleen Stock was given an OBE for the work that she's done, because it seemed to me to be a statement that you know, even though she had been vilified, I'm a student at Sussex University, and, you know, she had been vilified on campus. It's just great to see her getting that kind of recognition. So I think 
what I'm thinking is that the two things need really to go side by side and there's something that's encouraging in seeing a, a real line drawn that free speech is a value that in publicly funded universities needs to be accepted. Now, one of the reasons why I think that is particularly important is because I've been doing a lot of public speaking on a pro-choice issue. Um, I happen to really like debating people who are not pro-choice. And so I've been doing a lot of these debates, which have been systematically driven off campus before the uh, lockdown drove everybody off campus because feminist my sisters are basically saying that abortion should be beyond debate and it's somehow triggering for women to be exposed to these kind of debates. Here I am, former chief executive of British Pregnancy Advisory Service, being told that I can't put forward my views on campus. So by these very people who are supposed to be saying that they represent the views of people that we work with. So I think what I'm saying is that the government to actually be saying, come off it, free speech is an issue. We are not gonna have people driven in, 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 in this situation is actually quite helpful, I think, even though they're not gonna solve the problem. Thank you, Anne. So we have 10 minutes left. So please, if you have a question, um, put your hand up in the next five minutes because um, we'll be closing soon. Um, next question from Zara. Hi, my question is really, really um, brief. Um, so it's um, directed to Dr. Kaufman. And um, you say that we've got a culture that impedes academic freedom um, and it's embedded within, you know, universities and student culture um, and therefore you agree that these bureaucratic policies or measures are useful in instigating change. However, do you think that these policies, these bureaucratic measures are therefore ephemeral and if they are, at what point do you think we don't need um, a free speech champion or would you believe that it's going to be more like a seatbelt regulation where people just engage in free speech without thinking about it, you know, how people go in a car and put a seatbelt on without thinking about it, thus making perhaps, you know, the free speech champion position redundant. Thank you, Zara. Um, Josh? Hi. I just want to say uh, thank you for both of you today for speaking to us. It's uh, been very interesting. Uh, my question was based around how you distinguish between genuine um, harassment, which I think does exist and which is speech in some senses. In case of you, um, you're verbally harassing someone, how do you distinguish that from speech that might be offensive, but that should be allowed in a spirit of debate, for example? So if you were, um, I'm trying, I'm thinking of examples like when women go to abortion clinics and there are people there who are, you know, what they're doing in many ways appears like harassment. And it's clearly very, there's like a, there's a possibility that those people are harmed by that. And I see that as kind of, it's clear that it's harassment in some senses, but there is another thing where it's within a university that there's speech and debate and about how you balance those two things between, because I don't think it's one extreme or the other. I think that's kind of too simple maybe. I think there needs to be some sort of balance, but um, I just want to ask what you think about that and where you would put that, that balance really. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Chelsea? 
Hi there, and thank you both for sharing your um, your uh, opinions. Um, I think you both make some very interesting points. Um, my usual tendency would be to agree with Dennis. I do think debate is important, and we should be encouraging people to talk about things that you know are, are touchy subjects, shall we say? Um, but especially here in Scotland, um, it's becoming ever more difficult to um, have these conversations, especially with the new legislation that's been passed. Um, it sort of seems to me that maybe the government should be making less legislation in terms of revoking um, particular uh, legislation that's already out restricting speech. Um, I'm, I'm aware that we should have, you know, things like protecting you from libel and defamation and I, th I think someone else mentioned, you know, actual genuine threatening behaviour um, and calls to action, you know, such like. Um, but I know that people are self-censoring a lot, especially, I mean, I was at university like a decade ago now, and it was already people were, you know, shutting up um, about certain topics. Um, so I guess my, my real question is, I think you both have good points and maybe both are, are necessary, but how do we find a balance and how do we implement it quickly um, and I thank you for, for your response. Thank, thank you Chelsea. Um, short sharp questions next please. Um, ben? Thanks everyone. Um, great talks and one thing that people haven't mentioned is this um, curious feature of universities that they're so terribly snobbish. So I think uh, um, what I'd really like to know is what the 24 Russell Group vice chancellors think. If we could get the 24 Russell Group VCs on the side, um, they're the ones who are really going to to drive change. And if we if we've lost them, uh, then then I think we're really in trouble. Thank you, um, Ben uh, Teriyaki. Sorry about that, just unmuting myself, sorry. Um, yeah, um, a, an academic friend of mine sent me the document, Higher Education, Free Speech and Academic Freedom. And I was reading it and I kept highlighting over and over again where it said that these new policies and the uh, free speech champions would be constrained by the law. And that phrase, you know, within the law, was just repeated over and over again. I must have highlighted it. 25 times at least. And so what I was thinking was, um, if the law itself, the Equalities Act 2010, is so problematic, for example, it makes religion and religious belief a protected characteristic, as well as making gender identity a protected characteristic, which of course begs the question, that's the debate that we're trying to have, then, you know, I don't see how if we're going to have to be constrained within that law, this is really going to change anything at all. Thank you. And last question um, from Thomas Inns. Hi, sorry to ask another question, but uh, in this case, my question is for, I'm very sorry, I can't see uh, your name. I asked one to Dr. Kaufman before. I'd like to ask uh, our other guests. Uh, you've mentioned several times the universities have an overly uh, overly focused on uh, mental health and supporting students. Do you believe that universities have a duty to support their students who are suffering 
from mental health issues. Okay, um, so yes, that, that's um, the last question. And um, this opportunity will be your final um, closing statements um, to both guest speakers to kind of summarize your key points and pick up on any question that um, in the last round of questions. Um, so we'll go to Dr. Kaufman um, first. Okay, I'll try and be quick here. I mean, one question about the law that was mentioned, you can have a law on the books um, like the First Amendment in the U.S., and you can have 90% of university speech codes violating the law. It's not good enough just to have the law. You have to proactively actually enforce that law, or you have to sue. Suing, in my view, is suboptimal because it puts the onus on the accused. So this is where I think government action is, is especially necessary is to proactively enforce the law, take away the chilling effect of having to sue. So it is about, a lot of this is just about enforcing the law. In terms of speech, a lot of this, again, is speech within the law, not some artificial notion of speech, or some speech code created uh, by the university and, it's, and the university making up its own balance of priorities. Um, in terms of the conservative vote and whether this will alienate, <clears throat> this measure will alienate. Now, I think what's interesting is if you look at public op opinion amongst the British population and political or voting behavior, what you see is that 18-year-olds are about 20 points more conservative than 22-year-olds, and then you have 40-year-olds who kind of look like 18-year-olds. Now, so we're, we're in the midst of, a, of a, another transition now. I'm not sure where it's going to end, but I think Generation Z, if you like, is a little bit different from the millennials, and that's just turning up in the data. So that will be interesting to watch. I mean, I think that the government actually standing up for free speech will win it uh, support amongst a significant share of, of the student body who really do understand the, the restrictions on free speech quite well. So I actually think this could be a winner. Yes, of course, younger people tend to be um, you know, less conservative, but I think the kind of huge gap that we saw with the generation that went through Brexit uh, is no longer there at the uh, level of the 18-year-olds. So I don't think that's as much of a worry as we think it is. Um, but I, I, the other point I'd like to make is that ultimately, yeah, I mean, the problem underlying all of this can be traced actually back to the late 1960s when you also had students who were intolerant and who were essentially engaging in no platforming and engaging in forms of protest that were actually um, violating free speech of academics. Now, that has progressively become institutionalized. So this is a scale issue uh, with the free speech codes and the speech codes of the late 90s. Uh, this is a long-running ideological problem, which is really essentially about the kind of Marcuse repressive tolerance, this idea that if you are violating the free speech of an oppressor, that's okay. So somehow we've got to be able to overturn that ideology, which is also rooted in the sacralization of historically disadvantaged groups as, as sacred totems, and therefore they cannot be offended. And of course, you can step in and be offended on behalf of such groups. We have to actually eventually undo that sacralization if we're ultimately going to solve this problem. But really the argument for the government action is that we can't wait 50 years or however long it's going to take. In a way, for fairness, we need to actually act now. And I think that can change the culture. So that's that's where I'm going to leave it. Um, thank you, Dr. Kaufman. And your final closing statements for the evening, Dr. Hayes? Some fantastic questions about philosophy, law, harassment. I'm not going to deal with them, but I just say on, on philosophy, 
I've gone to some lectures on free speech by philosophers and always against free speech. So my, the solution is there, read more so you can challenge your lecturers. Um, but what I want to say in response to Anne Faraday and that um, there's a side, I've spent years defending people's right to say things and to argue. You know, I, I sort of, there's a side of me that says, great, I've said it to um, HR institutions, but um, departments in various universities, and we'll enjoy it in a year or two's time when you're having to defend yourself against somebody who says you're not defending free speech. But what a sad world that is. You know, it's like, there's a side of me that likes it, but it's not going to work. And I do think um, the, the crucial thing is, and this is the solution, it isn't going to take 20 years. What, I wrote a Times Higher article, and I, I thought about this, and I thought, how do we go forward? Well, if you believe in free speech, have a national debate. Because, you know, the, the debate about education in the 1970s, that's what you should do. If the government believe in free speech, have a national debate about academic freedom and free speech in higher education and involve the Russell Group and everyone else, and then you will take things forward a lot faster. But they're not going to do it. Why? Because they don't really believe in it. I mean, there's, the solution is you put it on in paper, but you don't do anything about it. And interestingly, I've convinced my Vice-Chancellor to support free speech. We've got a really short statement, which I put to the government. No bureaucratic convolutions, like 39 pages of policy procedures you have to go through before you get a speaker. It just says, we support free speech. And on external speakers, it says, uh, we support free speech. If you want to cancel um, a speaker, it's so important, it goes to the governors. We don't have any speakers cancelled. You know, we don't have issues with free speech. Keep it short. So there are things you can do is to get your university to adopt very clear, short statements about policies. And on the law, just, uh, sorry, I don't know if it was just said um, about, throughout that document, it says within the law. So when we wrote the ACFAF statement of um, academic freedom, which is based around the Hillhead Amendment to the 1988 Education Act, we took out freedom of speech within the law because there are so many laws restricting that speech. So we have, you know, freedom of speech absolutely, so you know, I think so. One thing you could all do if you haven't already done it, Ben and academics or students, is sign the AFAF statement. Just go onto the AFAF website and put your name to a free speech statement, and that will take things forward. But my main point is, we need that great debate. You know, so you know, congratulations to the free speech champions to start a debate, but we want a national debate like this. Thank you, Dr. Hayes, and we also want a national debate, and we are hoping to facilitate that. Um, and th thank you to our amazing guests, because I think it's been a very, very stimulating discussion. So thank you, Dr. Kaufman, and thank you, Dr. Hayes. And thank you to everyone for attending. Um, I hope that you um, enjoyed it, and we can all give a mini clap. <laughs> um, so yes, that, that is it um, for the evening. And the debate obviously will, will continue. And if you haven't already, sign up to the Free Speech Network and also sign up to be a free speech champion. And we very much agree that, you know, it has to also be starting free speech societies and debate, but also possibly some government intervention potentially. So thank you, everyone.